Good evening, everyone. If we could find our place, Mark chapter 10, we're going to be looking at verses 32 to 52. Uh, So 20 verses tonight, not quite as ambitious as Chris's 30, what, 31 or so last week, but uh, 20 verses for us this evening. A lot to get to, so we will jump right in. Um, For sake of time, I will not read the text. We'll read it as we go through. Um, But if we think through the last few months, really since the beginning of the year, um, we've been trekking our way through the book of Mark. And, And within this exploration of the book of Mark, we've been seeing the life of Jesus on display. We've seen how he has he has taken it to demonstrate his kingdom and continue to contrast himself with religious leaders, with this misconception of who he actually is as Messiah. So Jesus is, is laying out the framework of, Here, here's who I am. He's saying, I didn't, I didn't come to fit this man-made description of, of what a Messiah should look like. I didn't come to liberate the Jews from oppressive Rome. Because I came for a distinct purpose. I came for a distinct reason. And he he lays out, this is who I am. And what we'll see today as we look through the second half of Mark chapter 10 is we're going to begin to start to see why Jesus came. The details of why he came. What was his purpose in coming? You know, it's like when you set a goal for your family or yourself and and you want to try to achieve that goal. You're, You're looking to accomplish that goal. And all along the way, there are things that try to distract, there are things that come in that try to deviate you from your goal, but in the end, you stay focused, you stay intentioned to accomplish that goal. In the same way, Jesus is moving closer to his final goal, his final purpose and his accomplishments on the earth, and he is not about to be distracted by anything. From the very first chapter of the book of Mark, we saw that Jesus was living and operating in the shadow of the cross. And from that very first chapter on, that shadow begins to get bigger, begins to get darker, so that Jesus is now operating with this reality that the cross is very present. And so he's taken some time through these last few chapters, chapter 8, chapter 9, chapter 10, to really teach his disciples, because he knows that he's not going to be around much longer. And so he's teaching his disciples, what does it mean to lead? What does it mean to serve? What does it mean to sacrifice? And he knows that these men will need this training because in a few short months, they're going to be leading his church. So he needs men equipped. He needs men who will go and shepherd his church as well. But at this point in time, where they're at with their lives, they need a shepherd. And so Jesus is teaching them. He's shepherding them as they go along. And we've seen this pattern, too, from the middle of chapter 8, where Jesus will take the time to predict his death. He will say, this is what's going to happen to me. The Son of Man will die. Then he will spend some time teaching his disciples some truth, correcting some truth that the disciples have missed along the way. And then finally, there's some encounter that he has with a non-disciple. This is the pattern for the last few chapters we've seen. We saw in chapter 8 and chapter 9 as well that he's, he's continuing to teach them what it means to lead and continue to demonstrate that leadership to them as he interacts with non-disciples. We're going to look at three main concepts tonight, spend the majority of the time on our first two, and then touch on the last one because I'm going to probably go over 45 minutes and I don't want to keep you for two hours. Chris is starting my clock for me. That was his cue. So we're going to look at three, three different concepts. The first is kingdom identity, second is kingdom life, and the third is kingdom hope. So we jump into this pattern, verses 32 to 34, where we see that Jesus and his disciples are traveling to Jerusalem. 
Notice what the text says as well. It says that Jesus is leading the way. We know hindsight, and we've read through the rest of the the Gospels. We know what Jesus is going to Jerusalem for. He knows that he he has set his face to Jerusalem, and yet not only does Jesus teach his disciples how to lead, the scripture says that he actually is leading them. He's at the front. He's setting the pace for going to what we know to be as his death leading up to the most difficult thing, both physically and spiritually, that Jesus could ever endure. He's not in the back of the pack. He's not running back to Capernaum. He's not going back to Nazareth. He's leading his way in the face of death, setting the pace for everyone. So he's, he's setting an example for the disciples here. This is what a true leader looks like. This is what a true leader is doing. He's leading the way even in the face of death. So while we see the disciples are in awe of Jesus, we see that there's others following him that this says they are fearing Jesus, he takes his time to predict his death for a third time. Here's how we're going to navigate this section, just so everyone's following along. We're going to look at two Old Testament texts primarily, we might slip in a third one, um, that Jesus is using here, and then we're really going to try to dig into the cross. What does the cross mean? What are the implications of the cross for our lives? Because it's not just Jesus died and that's the end. There are implications for our lives as we consider what the cross is. As I said earlier, the first half of the book of Mark, you're really looking at Jesus establishing, this is me, this is who I am. I am king, I am Messiah. And now he's, he's starting to turn that picture to say, this is why I came. So he's trying to connect these two themes of who he is and why he came. The first thing we see that Jesus describes himself in his prediction of his death, he says, the son of man will be delivered over. He uses that term son of man. Eddie touched on this a couple of weeks ago as well, this idea of the son of man. It comes from Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. We'll read it together. It says, in my vision at night, I looked and there before me was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient of days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. His kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. You know, when Jesus appears on the scene in Mark chapter 1, he appears preaching a message. He's preaching a message of the kingdom of God, and, and he's making clear all throughout that first half of Mark that he is the king who is ushering this kingdom in. He's bringing this kingdom to fruition. He's establishing this kingdom. And when he uses that term son of man, what he's doing is he's invoking all of Daniel chapter 7 verses 13 and 14. And he's saying, this one, ultimate power, sovereign authority, that's me. That's me. This is who I am. But he goes further and we're going to look at Isaiah 52 and 53, very familiar passages. Where Jesus also, I think, invokes this idea when he talks of his prediction of death. He says, see, my servant will act wisely. He will be raised and lifted up. And highly exalted. Just as there are many who were appalled at him, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any human being, his form marred beyond human likeness. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised. We held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our sufferings, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. 
The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. So Daniel chapter 7 tells us of a person with ultimate authority, eternal kingdom. He will be worshipped and served by all nations, all people. Yet Isaiah tells us of a suffering servant who will be despised, rejected, and ultimately killed. So Jesus brings these two, these two figures together, son of man, suffering servant, and he brings them together and he says, this is me. And what he's doing here is he's saying the kingdom that I'm establishing as king, as full authority, as sovereign ruler, that, a king, that kingdom will be established in death. And Jesus gets very specific that he will be mocked, he'll be spit on, flogged and killed. Just look at Isaiah 50. You see the Old Testament is fulfilled in this way. It says, The sovereign Lord has opened my ears. I have not been rebellious. I have not turned away. I offered my back to those who would beat me, my cheeks to those who pulled out my beard. I did not hide my face from mocking and spitting. Because the sovereign Lord helps me, I will not be disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like flint, and I know I will not be put to shame. He who vindicates me is near. So Jesus has even predicted the fulfillment of Isaiah 50 down to the very details of how he will suffer, the actual things he will have to go through physically in his suffering. So the kingdom is established in death, but how? Jesus explains that for us. He says that the the Jewish leaders that he's battled with all throughout these first 10 chapters of Mark, they will condemn him. Notice the legal language there. They will condemn him. They will take him to trial and they will make a judgment that Jesus needs to die. And this isn't a just trial. This is a complete unjust trial. Actually, when we get to Mark 15, we'll see this. Mark chapter 15, verse 10, Pilate realizes that the Jewish leaders, their concern with Jesus was of their own self-interest. Mark tells us. Jesus was condemned in this unjust trial and handed over to the Romans who carry out the fulfillment of Isaiah as they mock him, spit on him, beat him, and kill him. But we notice the phrase in Mark chapter 10. Notice the phrase, will be delivered. This is a passive verb. So that means that someone else is doing the action here. This isn't Jesus doing the action upon himself. I will look back to Isaiah 53, very familiar verse. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. Some translations will put this, it was the Lord's pleasure to crush him. It pleased the Lord to crush him. So the one delivering Jesus over to death is not the Jewish leaders, it's not the Romans, it's not Judas, it is God the Father delivering Jesus over to death. So Jesus is leading this this pack of men, these disciples, on a path to Jerusalem, his face set like flint, Isaiah says. His face focused on what his task is, what his purpose is. And he's going up against all he knew that would come, his death, taking on the full wrath of God, taking each step with pure and total confidence. Face set like flint so that because he knew in total confidence that every step he was taking towards Jerusalem in the shadow of this cross was completely in his father's plan. So while the kingdom is being established in death, Mark tells us and helps us remember that death doesn't reign in this kingdom. The king defeats death because in three days after his death, the king will rise. And in rising, he will be vindicated. 
So his death is no failure on the part of the plan of God. His death wasn't a, a hiccup to God's plan. His death wasn't a mistake to God's plan. It is fulfillment of God's plan. And so in every step that Jesus takes, he is just showing over and over again his complete and total confidence in the providence of God. John Piper defines providence this way, and I think it's helpful for us. Providence is wise and purposeful sovereignty. That is, providence is God taking all of his infinite control of all things, his sovereignty, applying to that his infinite wisdom and producing his infinitely good purposes. We often think of providence as God protecting us from something. We narrowly avoid getting into a car accident. Well, that's the providence of God keeping me from a car accident. And we rejoice in that, and we should, because that is the providence of God. But providence cuts both ways. It's not just the good that happens in our lives that demonstrates the providence of God. It's also the bad. Even the most painful experiences of our lives are not happening outside of the wise and purposeful sovereignty of God. It's not just bad luck when the car breaks down and we don't know how we're paying for it. It's not outside of God's providence when out of the doctor's mouth comes the diagnosis of cancer. God is providential over the good and over the bad And it's in those moments of good and bad where God is producing in us, as Hebrews 12 tells us, peaceful fruits of righteousness. See, Jesus understood this, so he could walk in confidence, staring death in the face. And the reality is, for providence in our lives, that we as Christians, that we don't need to fear tomorrow. We don't need to despair today. Because our God has infinite control of all things. And and in his infinite wisdom, he is seeking our good and his glory. And we can rest in that. That God is providential over all areas of our lives. So we've navigated through a few verses. And if you're, you're trekking with me so far, Jesus has predicted for us the what that will happen. The Son of Man will be killed. He's told us the who, the hands of the Jewish leaders and the Romans, the how, the deliverance by the hand of God, but we need to understand the why. And I think Isaiah 53 helps us here further. Verses 5 and 6, but he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So God saw the problem of sin, our problem of sin, and he provided a remedy. He provided a remedy in the form of a substitute, the Son of Man, Jesus Christ, so that whoever would believe on him would be granted eternal life. So why did he come? Why did Jesus set his face to Jerusalem and say, every step I'm taking, I'm taking in the confidence that God is fully in control of all of these things? He did it because he loved his people enough to sacrifice himself, sacrifice his life in the place of sinners. So that when we repent and believe the gospel of Jesus, we become part of this kingdom of God. Anyone here who has not trusted in Christ for the forgiveness of sins, who would say, I'm not part of this kingdom, my invitation for you is this. Come to Jesus. He's defeated death 
for you. As we'll see later on in this chapter, do as Bartimaeus does. Cry to Jesus for mercy, and in crying to Jesus, you will find mercy, you will find hope, and you will find rest. There are so many implications of the gospel for us, but we're going to look at one one that I think is relevant for us today before we move on to verse 35. So Jesus is establishing his kingdom in death. The symbol of death is the cross, and it's not just the jewelry we wear, the silver and the gold that hangs around our neck. We're talking about an execution symbol. We're talking about blood-soaked cross, pierced back, shredded back, pierced hands and feet, thorns on his head. That's the symbol of death. And we know the symbol of victory. He rises three days later, an empty tomb, which Paul tells us provides us with meaning to our faith. That without that empty tomb, there's no purpose for us even gathering here tonight. And what Jesus is saying is, in these symbols of cross, empty tomb, as part of this kingdom, you have a new identity now. You have a kingdom identity. And it no longer means fisherman, tax collector, Jew, Greek, male, female. That's no longer your primary identity. So Jesus has gifted us a new kingdom identity. It's not in a hashtag. It's not in something we hear in society. It's not in in a man-made system that tells us what our identity should be. Our identity is in his kingdom. Our identity is in Jesus. And when we start to understand that, it really revolutionizes how we live. Because our our identity is no longer bound up in our profession, in our ethnicity, in in what society tells us we should be, or or even in the words of other people. People's words can, can try to tear us down, try to beat us up and make us feel worthless. And so there's a constant battle in this world of self esteem, self confidence. Society's solution to that is, well, just look inside and you'll, you'll find your self-confidence. You'll find your self-esteem inside of you. you now, Exodus 3 and 4 is such an interesting passage because it's, it's where God calls Moses. And Moses says to him, I- I'm not worthy to go lead your people. God says to him, I'll be with you. He comes up with another reason. He says, I, who, who should I say sent me? Well, I, I am has sent you. Finally, his last rebuttal, I, God, I am not a good speaker. You don't want me representing you in front of your people. God's response to him is so simple. Moses, who gave you a mouth? You see, he, God's looking at Moses, who is not recognizing any confidence in himself. He, he's got a low view of himself. And he's not saying, Moses, go look inside of yourself and you'll find something that will help you lead this, that will help you do this. No, he's saying, look to me. That you want self-esteem in life? Find your identity in me. Look at me and I will grant you the healthy self-esteem that you need. Because if you're struggling with self-esteem, you're struggling with self-confidence, the answer is not inside of yourself. It is this. You are created in the image of God. You are a blood-bought saint of God, and you stand before him under no condemnation. You can't find worth inside of yourself, but you can, moment by moment, day by day, find your identity in Jesus. And as you find your identity in Jesus, 
esteem him as the Savior and Lord that he is, he will grant you a healthy self-esteem. But it only happens when we root ourselves and our identity in Christ. Paul says it this way, we are Christ's and Christ is God's. That's our new identity in this kingdom. Say a couple more things about kingdom identity because I think it's relevant, especially in our culture today. Kingdom identity trumps ethnic identity, man-made racial identities, national political identities. Since our identity is in Christ, hashtags are not our identity. We are not subject to what society tells us should be our identities. We're, We're part of a culture right now that wants to categorize and segment everyone into things like race, gender, and culture, and class, and sexuality. And the culture tells us that that as those things intersect, that's where you'll find your identity. And we're being told that because we look a certain way, we should believe a certain thing. We should act a certain way. We should reject the idea that because of the color of our skin, we have to find our identity in that. We should reject the idea that because of the color of our skin, Our primary identity means we have to be a certain way. In fact, as Paul says, we are Christ's and Christ is God's. So we should reject the idea that that our ethnicity is what is our primary identification marker. Additionally, identity is not found in patriotism and politics. Just as it should rightly bother us when someone says, if you're black, you'll vote this way, it should rightly bother us if someone says, if you're Christian, you'll vote this way. It should bother us when someone stands up and says, let us run the race marked out before us. And they're not talking about perseverance in our faith. They're talking about a political party and a political race. That should bother us. We should be comfortable with that. Appropriating Jesus into politics to curry favor with Christians is wrong. Believing that the freedoms we have in Christ equate to freedoms as Americans is wrong. If our political identity is causing fractures in relationships inside and outside of the church, our identity is off. If there is some level of anxiety or fear about elections come November, can I remind you that the guy with the D or the R after his name is not our savior? He's not fixing all of our problems. God is providential. The one who will win in November is going to be there because God, in his perfect wisdom, decided that it would happen that way. Our primary identity is not as an American, our primary identity is we are Christ's and Christ is God's. That's where we sit in our identity. So I'm sure some of you are like, I didn't like what he just said. Um, and, and that's okay. If you didn't like what I said, come and talk to me. We'll have a conversation. Um, what I didn't say, though, is ignore your ethnicity. What I didn't say, though, is don't identify in any way with your culture, whether you're white or black. What I didn't say is don't love your country. I didn't, I didn't say let's deconstruct and tear down America because all of it's wrought with racism and, and it's all evil. I didn't say that. To summarize what I'm saying is this. 
If we identify with anything, whether it's ethnicity, whether it's patriotism, whether it's a job, whether it's relationships that seem more important to us than loving God and loving our neighbors, our identity's off. If we want to see the fruit of our commitment to unify peoples from every class, color, and capacity, it begins when we individually and collectively find our unity in identifying with Christ first. That's the foundation of how we can reconcile with one another. That's the foundation of how we can unify together as a church. And you know, it's because of our identity with, with the kingdom of God that the way we live is directly impacted. You know, kingdom life is not just about, just about be part of the kingdom, then make it what you want it to be. Kingdom life is not just, well, I'm a part of the kingdom now, and I'll, I'll kind of figure it out, and what I want it to be, and what I think is ideal for me, that's what I'll make it. That's kingdom life for me. You know, James and John didn't understand that identifying with the kingdom had implications for how they were to live. The story continues for us. Jesus has just predicted his, his death, and James and John approach him, and they ask him a question. And I'm sure at this moment we're hoping that the question is, can you, can you grant me more faith? Can you grow my faith? But instead we see this. We say, teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. And we kind of start to put our hands in our head, maybe shake our head a little bit like, they're not getting it again. Like, they're, they're going to miss it again, aren't they? They've been missing it for 10 chapters. We thought they'd catch it now, but it's not happening. Jesus simply asks, what do you want me to do? And it's incredible irony, and we'll get to why it's ironic in a minute. They say, I want to be, can, can we be on your right and your left in the kingdom? Jesus' ultimate answer to these men that he says, these, these positions aren't mine to grant. That God has already prepared those who would sit on my right and sit on my left in my kingdom. And the remaining disciples listen to this and, sit, and Mark tells us they become indignant. They, they become angry. Because these two had the audacity to actually ask to be great in the kingdom. While they were just trying to seek their own way of being great. That's why they were mad. They weren't mad because they got it wrong. They, they were mad because they're putting themselves in a position to become great when they want to become great. You know, we read Mark a lot, and we see the disciples and their response, and oftentimes it seems like we're looking at a painting. We're looking at a painting, and we're seeing all the flaws, we're seeing all the mistakes that the artist made, we're seeing all the different things they did that, that weren't right, and we can become critical of the disciples, we can critique the disciples, and say, how are they just not getting it yet? So many things over and over, and they just don't have eyes to see or ears to hear. But in reality, when we're reading these sections, it's not so much we're looking at a painting as much as it's we're looking at a mirror. And that mirror is reflecting back all of the flaws and mistakes that we make when it comes to Jesus. Because we miss him too. We think kingdom life is about something in one way when it's in fact completely opposite. We operate and live in a way that we think kingdom life is this way when it's, when it's not. We desire to be great, but it has to be on our conditions and our terms. And ultimately, this whole conversation with James and John is just a rehashing of chapter 9. Who will be the greatest? Who will be the greatest? So for James and John, kingdom life just means ascending to greatness to be at either side of the Messiah. You know, I said 
a little bit ago that it was ironic how they were saying this. The, the question they asked was ironic. It's ironic because we're just a little bit over a week away from two men being on Jesus' right hand and on his left hand. And it's not James and John. It's two thieves on a cross. How ironic that that's the question they ask. And just in about a week's time, there'll be two thieves hanging on a cross on Jesus' side. And it makes this connection in the middle of these verses all the more clear for us. When Jesus says, can you drink the cup I'm about to drink? Can you be baptized in the waters I'm about to be baptized in? And their response is, of course, yes, of course I can. It's a combination of, of ignorance and arrogance to think that they can do this. Because what they, what they don't realize is that Jesus is saying, can you, can you truly drink this cup of death? Can you really be baptized and enter the waters of death with me? Because tragically, when that time comes, a week away, they're not there. Jesus is not hanging between brothers. He's hanging between criminals. And yet they don't understand what kingdom life looks like because they're trying to make it what they want it to be. The disciples' anger in here just further shows that these men are seeking greatness. They're seeking power. They're seeking position. They're operating without eyes to see or ears that hear. And and they have this worldly view of leadership. And Jesus is going to speak directly against that. There's this power dynamic going on that Jesus mentions where there's, there's Gentile leaders who are a ruling class. They're lording over people. They're exercising authority over people. You know, the disciples have even experienced this. The, the whole reason they think Jesus is going to Jerusalem is to throw out the oppressors, to throw out the people, the leaders who have been treating them so poorly. And yet all they want to do is just kind of put themselves right into that. They just want to take over and assume that role of leadership and do the exact same thing that the Romans were doing. This isn't a positive view that Jesus has of the Gentile leaders. He's saying these are oppressive leaders who trample on people to get what they want. Side note, not for this message, because that would be way too much time. Oppression is in the Bible. Oppression is something that the Bible talks about. It's not the lens through which we interpret the world. But it is something the Bible speaks to. It speaks to oppressive leadership. And it doesn't speak kindly about it. Read Ezekiel 22. God goes in depth with what he thinks of oppressive leaders. And it's not good. But I love what Jesus does here because he takes this this drive to be great. And he doesn't just tell the disciples, stop being great. Don't seek greatness. He reinterprets what greatness looks like. He reinterprets what greatness is. He redefines what it is. Because look what he says. He says, these oppressive rulers lord over people, but not so with you. True greatness is not elevating yourself above other people so that they can serve you. It's not about getting to be first and stepping on people to get there. Kingdom life is not about using people to get what you love it's about using what you love, using what you have to love other people. So we ought to be using our time, our material wealth, our position, our status to care for and love other people. And this is most true within the church. We're not consumer Christians. We are not joining into membership 
covenant membership with Eternal City Church so that we can be served. We don't, we don't hunt out a church so that we can find what fits for us, and when we don't find it, we just decide to do church our own way. We don't seek to use others for our personal benefit in the church. Rather, we seek to outdo one another in showing honor. We find out how people are struggling and we love on them. So the question for us is, are we, are we others-oriented and servant-minded enough to look past our own wants and our own desires and our own feelings to lovingly serve someone else? I'll throw this in too. Are we willing to do all those things when we disagree with the person? When we don't like something that person said? Are we willing to lovingly serve that person? Because service takes sacrifice. Serving other people takes a hit to our own pride, especially when someone's done something we disagree with or something that we don't like. Serving others requires humility to admit when we're wrong, to admit when we have faults, but also to elevate the concerns of someone else above our own. That's a hit straight to our pride. To say, I'm going to elevate what, concern, what is concerning to someone else above what my concerns are so that I can love them and serve them and sacrifice for them. And you might say, well, I, I don't know. I don't know how I can serve other people. Three very practical options. First, ask. Very simple. Ask people. Ask people how they're doing. What do they need? How can you be praying for them? Where are they struggling in their lives? Both practically and spiritually. Where are they struggling? How can you be be helping them fight in battles against sin? Ask them how they're doing. Side note. For those who are being asked. In humility, answer them. Be honest about what's going on. Don't try to put on this veil that everything's perfect and everything's great when you're dying inside. Be open about what's happening. Be available to be served. We don't like to be served. We don't like to be dependent on people. We don't don't like this idea that someone else is going to serve us. But that's why the church is here. We are here for one another, to serve and care for and love one another. Put in a plug for gospel-centered communities. Those conversations most happen in intimate times, and those happen within our gospel-centered community. So if you're not part of one, get into one, start living life with people. That's when you'll start to be able to figure out how to serve other people and how to care for other people, when you actually hear what's on their heart, when you actually hear what they're struggling with. Second, so first, ask people. Second, talk to the elders and deacons. There are numerous ways that you can help serve in the church. You can, you can help serve with the, the food shelf ministry by dropping off and donating food or delivering to various people as they need. We have an entire site available to take someone through discipleship courses and help them grow in their faith. Maybe it would be service to someone who struggles with keeping on task to help them walk through a course together so that they can bring it to completion and that they would grow and that they would learn more about the gospel. All this equipment needs to get set up every single week. Serve in even the lowest forms that nobody sees by setting up a chair or pulling tubs out of a, out of a, out of a room. We can serve by doing all of these different things. So if you're like, I want to serve, I want to get involved, ask one of the elders, ask one of the deacons. We can plug you in to numerous things. The third thing 
Start in your home. One of our core commitments, and Chris mentioned earlier, is to train and challenge men to lead sacrificially. Husbands, fathers, how are you doing? What are the things you're doing on a regular basis to intentionally serve your family? It's going to look different for every family. There's no, there's no like prescribed formula for how this is supposed to work or how this is supposed to be. Rather, it's about giving of ourselves for the benefits of our family. Well, I don't know how my wife wants to be served. Ask. Ask how we can serve our wives. Find out. But remember, service takes sacrifice. Because in the name of service and sacrifice for our wives, it may mean staying up late because your wife is struggling to sleep because she's sad and discouraged about something happening in life, and you're going to just be there to comfort her. Service to your wife could mean not trying to solve all of their problems, but just listening sometimes. Service can take a form with your wife to not always have to have the last word in an argument. Not always have to demonstrate to your wife why you were right and they were wrong. That's service. That's sacrifice. Because it, it, it takes a bit of ourselves. It, it hits our pride to not, to not tell them we were right. We really want to tell them we're right. Well, let's, let's sacrifice and serve our wives and withhold that. It means giving up leisure to engage children and parent them in a way that is grounded in and rooted in truth. It means you might not be able to watch the football game because you have to take care of your kids. That's service, that's sacrifice. And, and so my question for you is, how are you doing? What are the intentional things you're doing every week to try to serve and sacrifice for your family? Wives and mothers, how are you doing? We have an additional core commitment to equip women for ministry. Ministry to other people inherently involves sacrifice in order to serve. And that includes ministry within your family. That includes ministry in your home. How are you intentionally seeking to love and serve your family? It's going to be painful. It it may include difficult conversations, doing things that you, you never imagined you would ever need to do in order to serve your family. Maybe it means lovingly encouraging your husband when you know he's frustrated about something. And you know you're a little frustrated at him too, but you're going to encourage him anyway. It means waking up early to care for a child even when the pillow keeps talking to you, like come back to sleep. It means supporting your husband as they seek to lead, but also challenging your husband when things seem a little off. So how are you doing? What are the intentional things you're doing as a wife and as a mother to care for and serve your family? Children, we have a couple children in the room. How are you doing? What are you doing in your life to care for and serve and sacrifice for your parents? It could be just as simple as a quiet evening after a long day. That's your service to your parents. <laughs> Chris, Chris like, yeah, that's right. It's the quiet evening at home. <laughs> Not possible. <laughs> That's good. Sorry, Chris. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Don't know where to go with it. <laughs> Adult children. And, and this is for me because I am, I am so independent that I, I have gone weeks and weeks and weeks and 
months without talking to, to parents and engaging them. How are we serving our aging parents as they get older? It means something as simple as possibly a phone call to check in to see how they're doing. Potentially caring for them as they become older, as their bodies and their minds start to break down. It's a huge sacrifice of life and time. Huge sacrifice. But are we prepared in the name of service to sacrifice what we want to care for someone else? Service, in, service is kingdom life. We, we want to identify with the kingdom of God, but we struggle to live how the kingdom calls us. And so Jesus is saying, if you want to be great in the kingdom of God, you identify with this kingdom, you want to be great in this kingdom, we should serve other people. He doesn't, he doesn't just declare it, though. He doesn't just say it and then walk away. He tells us why in verse 45. He uses his title again, Son of Man. I love that he does that because he's, he's bringing again back this imagery of this ultimate, supreme, authoritative ruler, this king, the highest of the highest. He did not come to be served, but he came to serve. The one person who has every right to lord over someone doesn't. He says, no, no, I'll serve. He didn't, he didn't come to make servants, but he came to serve. He didn't come to get, but to give. And he gives and gives and gives until eventually he's given everything, including his own life. But what does he, what does he give? Jesus tells us that he gives his life, verse 45 there, as a ransom. He gives his life as a ransom. The first century idea of this word is that it carries a financial meaning. It basically is, is the word that was used for a price paid to release a, a slave from slavery or release a prisoner from prison. Biblical language helps us with when we think about this sacrificial system of the Old Testament. The guilty need a substitute. The guilty need a substitute, so a sacrifice was made of a lamb who, who would make the atonement. The, he would cover the sins. The lamb would remove the wrath of God in that sacrificial system. We see it in even the language of the verse. The, the word for there literally means in place of. So when we look at verse 45 and he says, the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom in place of the many. We have to look back at Isaiah 53, verse 11. It says, my righteous servant will justify many and he will bear their iniquities. So the most elevated son of man, the king, came as the lowest. The high became low so that he could serve, save, and ransom a debt-ridden, hell-bound humanity. There was hell to pay on the cross, but Jesus took it. He took it in our place. And in taking our place, he satisfied the righteous wrath of God. That is sacrifice, and that is service. And that's why he says, if you want to be great in this kingdom, you have to sacrifice and serve other people. He gives us the reason why we need to operate this way. Kingdom identity means kingdom living, which means service and sacrifice. Because the one who didn't need, who, who shouldn't have sacrificed, did on our behalf. We're going to finish our time briefly looking at the story of Bartimaeus. There's much more in our discussion guide. There's a discussion guide on the side. If you don't have one, email the church. We'll email it to you. 
Um, so I, I'm going to encourage you to dig into this on your own because we only have about five minutes and I don't think we're going to cover all the details in five minutes. So dig into this on your own in your GCCs and it's a great story and I would recommend digging into it more, which is all have time. So quickly summarize, Bartimaeus is a blind beggar in the town of Jericho. So from the outset of this story, there is a man who is disabled, he is dependent, he's not able to see, he's dependent on other people to care for him so that he's able to live. He hears that Jesus is walking by down the road and he cries out, son of David, have mercy on me. There's a crowd following Jesus and and they basically tell him to to be quiet. And he he cries out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. He's not going to let some crowd tell him to be quiet that we could have the faith of this man. His physical eyes may not see, but his spiritual eyes are wide open. As he uses this term, son of David, and what he's doing is he's saying, this is the promised king. This is, this is the one that in 2 Samuel 7, God, God gave this covenant to David to say, one who is going to rule and you will have an established kingdom forever. This is the king. This is the Messiah. So Jesus, Jesus responds. Bartimaeus has nothing to bring to Jesus. Absolutely nothing. But he calls out, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus responds and he stops and he says, go and call him. Let that be a lesson for us in that those who come to Christ in humility will never be rejected. They will only be embraced. The mercy of Jesus is on display as as Bartimaeus responds by throwing off his cloak. This could have been possibly the only earthly possession this man has. And he throws it away, he jumps to his feet in pure joy, and he runs at Jesus, leaving everything behind to come to him. Notice the question Jesus asks him, because it's very familiar. What do you want me to do for you? It's the same exact question Jesus asked James and John. The very same question. But there's an entirely different response. You see, James and John, we want their answer to be, give me eyes to see. But we're left disappointed because the disciples, when they, when they ask Jesus and they answer this question of Jesus, they want to be seen. What is Bartimaeus' response? I just want to see. Jesus responds as he so often does in Mark. And he says, go, your faith has healed you. But Bartimaeus, he, he responds differently than others. He doesn't just go on his way. Mark tells us he actually follows Jesus. So his, his sight has been restored. This miraculous healing has taken place. Jesus has done this wonderful thing for him. And he doesn't go away as Jesus says he follows. And I think he follows because he knows he's found the king. He's found the son of David... And in finding the son of David, he has found hope. He has found kingdom hope in this man, the rightful king whose kingdom will be established forever. Our kingdom identity in Christ produces in us a kingdom life of sacrifice and service. And we do all of that. We sacrifice and we serve. We identify with the kingdom all because we have a future hope of a kingdom that will last forever. Isaiah 11 says this, It calls Jesus the root of Jesse. And it says that 
His, his kingdom will be established forever and his resting place, and as we identify with the kingdom and as we live in this kingdom, our resting place will be glorious. That's what we have to anticipate. That's what we have as our hope. We identify with this kingdom, we live in this kingdom, and we hope for a future return of Jesus. And as we hope for that future return of Jesus, we serve and we sacrifice and care for other people. It's with all these things in mind that, that we're going to take communion tonight. So if we want to start preparing for that, that would be great. And as we prepare for that, let us remember that this is a time for those who have identified with Christ. They've identified with Christ, and, and maybe that's even happened for you this evening. And in identifying with Christ, we remember the Lord's death, his broken body and his shed blood, and we remember it until he comes. But just remember, as we do this, we're, we're doing it remembering the cross that we identify with, but we're also doing it anticipating a future where we get to do this again. But when we get to do it again in the future, we get to do it with our king in, in the marriage supper of the lamb as he has this meal with us one day.